Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, show number 86. Like as a founder, like, do you know what you're getting yourself into? which is both that you're about to start running a marathon. You have no idea how long that marathon is going to last. And by the way, most days while you're running that marathon, you're going to get punched in the face. Welcome to a real world MBA from the School of Hard Knocks, where entrepreneurs reveal what it really takes to make it. Whether you're already in business or you're on your way there, this show is for you. This is Bigger Pockets Business. How's it going, everybody? I am Jay Scott. I'm your co-host for the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast, and I am here again this week with my beautiful co-host and my beautiful wife, Carol Scott. How are you doing today, Carol? Oh, doing so well, and thank you for always talking me up. I appreciate you more than you know. And I've got to tell you, we are closing in on the end of 2020, and we have some absolutely awesome guests lined up for the rest of this year and on into 2021. And so we are always looking for more entrepreneurs, business owners, and founders with great pro tips. So if you've got a great story to share with actionable advice, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to be on our guest, if you would like to be on our show or know somebody else who would, just go to biggerpockets.com slash guest. That's biggerpockets.com slash guest. We would absolutely love to hear from you. Absolutely. And we have a great show today. We have another show that I refer to as real estate adjacent, meaning it's related to real estate. The person we have on is not a real estate investor, but he runs a real estate related business. And actually, he is a real estate investor in a way. He invests in real estate businesses. And on this episode, we talk about both. So his name is Jonathan Wasserstrom. He is the founder of a company called Square Foot. And Square Foot is, they're a marketplace. They're a marketplace that brings brings together commercial real estate owners and companies that are looking for commercial real estate space. And he brings the two together in a way that's so much more efficient than was possible in the past. And he does it using technology. And so Jonathan is a big fan of property-related technology. There's an industry that's been growing over the past decade called prop tech or property technology, which is essentially uh, this whole emerging industry of technology related to real estate. And in addition to running Square Foot, which is a prop tech company, Jonathan also is an investor in other prop tech companies. He's essentially an angel investor. He's one of those people that makes investments in early stage companies, in hopes that they do well and then he gets a big return. And on this episode, in addition to talking about the evolution of Square Foot and what Square Foot does, Jonathan also talks to us about being an angel investor and how that whole industry works. And for all of us real estate investors, it's actually interesting. It's very analogous to investing in certain types of real estate. So for you real estate investors, I think you'll you'll like that analogy. So on this discussion, we talk about square foot, we talk about angel investing, we talk about how to get into angel investing, we talk about if you just want to be a small angel investor. I do want to make a quick disclosure. So Jonathan talks about his prop tech investing funds, his angel investing fund. Carol and I are investors in his fund, so I do want to make that disclosure. We don't get paid anything if you decide to invest in it or if you decide not to or if you decide to invest in anything else. There's no benefit to us. But I do want to make that disclosure that we are an investor in his fund. And that's how I met Jonathan. And that's why we chose to have him on the show, because he's a great guy and he has an amazing story. Uh, I am going to say one other thing. If you are sensitive to curse words, Jonathan does use the S word and the F word just a couple times in this episode. So I do want to throw that out. If that's uh, something that's going to discourage you from listening, please know ahead of time. Um, And also, if you have little kids around and you want to quiet it down, you might want to listen with headphones on. Uh, It's only a couple times, but I also wanted to mention that as well. Now, if you want to learn 
more about Jonathan, more about his company Square Foot or any of the things he invests in, check out our show notes at biggerpockets.com slash bizshow86. Again, that's biggerpockets.com slash bizshow86. Okay, without any further ado, let's welcome Jonathan Wasserstrom to the show. Jonathan, welcome to the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. We are so absolutely looking forward to hearing your story, learning about all the great things you've done, and just getting all kinds of great pro tips for our listeners. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Absolutely. So, Jonathan, you have a great background, and I think we're going to touch on a whole lot of really interesting things today. So, you come from a real estate background in a sense. Uh, you come from a business background. You also come from an investing background. Your company has raised a lot of money, but you also invest in other companies as an angel investor. So I kind of want to talk about all these things today, but let's start with your backstory. So tell us, how did you kind of get into the real estate industry? Tell us about your company, Square Foot, that you started a bunch of years ago um, and just kind of the evolution of you in the, the real estate industry. Yeah, so uh, my quick background, I grew up in Houston. I went to college in Atlanta, lived in D.C. for a handful of years after that. Most of the time was doing capital markets work at JLL. So this was kind of 2007 to 2010 in a group called the International Capital Group. This is, you know, 13 years ago, and that group started a handful of years before I got there because this is now 20 years ago, which is crazy. But at the time, it was a really novel idea to think that there would be foreign buyers of U.S. real estate and U.S. buyers of foreign real estate. So JLL set up this group called the International Capital Group that had kind of a, a senior and a junior in each of kind of the world capitals, right? So we were here in D.C., in the States here in D.C., and there's analogous pairs in London, Sydney, Shanghai, and Dubai. It was awesome. I learned a ton. I had a lot of fun. It was not the most lucrative uh, few years of my life because we were trying to do capital markets work in the middle of the Great Recession, or whatever they called that few years, but it was awesome. And that's how I kind of got started in real estate. I was very fortunate when I started that job. This was, I guess, one of the benefits or kind of silver linings of, of, of work not being so fast-paced because the markets were slow. My boss let me uh, shadow some other people around the organization. So uh, I got to spend a little time doing some leasing, not like actually working transactions, but like shadowing some of the senior people uh, in a few different groups. So it gave me at a very, very, very shallow level, a lot of experience into kind of what it means to be in commercial real estate, right? So leasing, development, our group was capital markets. Within capital markets, there was both uh, investment sales, which was buying and selling the buildings, as well as real estate investment banking, which was helping put debt on these transactions, and actually a group called Corporate Capital Markets that did kind of big sale leasebacks for big corporate users. So I, I learned a ton. It was awesome. The plan was always to go back to business school, which I did, which is what brought me to New York. got my MBA at Columbia, but shortly after I got here, I got a call from a friend of mine who was looking for space for his last company. He'd gone online to try and do that, thought you could find office space online the same way you could find an apartment or a house online. And uh, sure as, uh, as not, sure as, I can't say that word. Uh, <laughs> sure, sure you can. Just you can say, say it. it. Just say it. <laughs> uh, sorry, sure, sure as shit, you can't. Uh, so my phone rings, Jonathan, how the heck do I do this? And after a couple of those conversations, we saw there was a whole bunch of pain points that growing companies feel uh, finding, transacting, occupying real estate. So we decided to fix that with Square Foot. So it was the uh, summer between my first and second year of business school, which would have been kind of May, June, July, August of 2011. We kind of pulled up in my parents' attic uh, in Houston and we started Square Foot. During my second year of business school, kind of taking classes full time and doing this kind of nights and weekends, we saw there's enough meat on the bone to continue doing this full time. And by the time we graduated, by the time I graduated in May of 2012, we were full time on square foot and kind of the rest is history. So square foot is basically, it's a real estate company, but you help companies find office space. So um, if, if you were going to use an analogy in the, uh, in the residential world, who are you like in the residential world, but on the commercial side? Yeah. Redfin or Compass. Perfect. So, so you decided to kind of focus on this industry. You started Square Foot in 2011. You were still in business school. What was your, I mean, was this something you were doing part-time? Did you raise money? Were you self-funding? Did you have a team around you? Was it just you? What did it look like in the early days? 
Yeah, so early days, it was me and two guys I knew from home. We started it, we self-funded it to like build the prototype. I think we'll talk about this more soon, but like prop tech wasn't a word, like VCs weren't funding real estate startups. More importantly than that, you know, we couldn't convince tech people that like the future for them should be in helping us build a real estate tech company. So we started by using a firm to build the initial prototype. And then after we did that, we were able to get some initial clients and customers. And by that point, you know, the snowball was starting to build, albeit very small. And then we were able to recruit a CTO to help uh, kind of join us full time to help build out the product going forward. And then we got into an accelerator here in New York called ERA, Entrepreneur's Roundtable Accelerator, the beginning of 2013. And then kind of off to the races since then. And that's technically like, you know, we got a few dollars from them. That was uh, kind of the first institutional capital we took. Cool. Real quick, Jonathan, just to uh, help some of our listeners, just who might not be quite as familiar with the terminology, um, what exactly is prop tech? And can you give us some examples of what that means? Yeah, uh, I, I smile because I take a very, very broad definition of prop tech. So for me, Prop tech is anything that impacts the built environment, right? So like easy stuff is like a commercial estate leasing platform, like square foot, right? Or on the residential side, right? Compass or Redfin, right? Who do what we do, except for people buying and selling houses. It can also be like energy management solutions, either for a house or for a building. It can be self-storage marketplaces, right? So that's a very big and growing part of the world is self-storage. Well, how do you find the self-storage unit that you use? And by the way, how do those self-storage providers run their business, right? So there's a whole software platform for them. Got it. Got it. So property technology is basically any company that's kind of focused on building technology and infrastructure around real estate. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So, okay. So uh, you're still in business school. You're growing a little bit. You join an incubator. They give you some money. What's kind of the next steps? At what point do you say, okay, this is going to be, if not my life's work, this is going to be my next decade of work and maybe longer than that. When do you decide to kind of plant that stake in the ground and say, square foot is the place I, I'm going to kind of focus for the, the next however many years of my life? Yeah. On some level, I wish that there was actually that conversation that ever happened as opposed to like, you just kind of one foot in front of the next and like now 10 years later, we're 10 years in. You know, like there's a very, very high uh, mortality rate with startups. So, and, and by the way, this is like my first, not this is my first startup, it was my first like even exposure to like startups as like a way of life, a business, whatever you want to call it. Now, I worked at JLL, which has I don't know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 global employees. It was a great, great place to work. It still is a great company, but it's not a startup. So I had no idea when I was starting this, and I didn't have friends who were in startups. You know, I grew up in Houston, went to Atlanta for college, right? New York for business school. Uh, this was before startups were like popular in New York. Um, so I really had no idea what I was getting myself into. I didn't know. Like by the way, if you'd asked me, like, do you want to spend the next ten years doing this? I think I probably would have said yes, but that conversation never happened. Um, now, as you know, when I sit on the other side of the table, invest in advising companies, a lot of whom are in prop tech, I do have that conversation with them. Like as a founder, like, do you know what you're getting yourself into, which is both that you're about to start running a marathon. You have no idea how long that marathon is going to last. And by the way, most days while you're running that marathon, you're going to get punched in the face. So just know what you're signing up for. Nobody had that conversation with me, uh, which is not somebody else's fault. That was, I just had no idea what I was getting myself into, but it's been awesome. Okay, so Jonathan, clearly you absolutely have your finger 100% on the pulse of real estate technology. So where are you seeing innovation in technology happen in this space? And what are some of, I guess, the current trends that you're seeing these days? Yeah, it's, it's a bit of a bullshit answer, but it's, it's literally everywhere, <laughs> right? There's really not a single portion of the industry that isn't being touched by technology right now or where there's two guys in their parents attic or basement or garage depending on what part of the country they live in thinking about the next thing right so i know you all spend a lot of time on the residential side i spend a lot of time on the commercial side there's three or four other property types that are pretty interesting and if we look at 
the day-to-day experiences that you have as a client or a tenant or customer in any of those. If you look at the ownership, the buy-sell process of any of those, if you look at the management of any of those, it's not that silly of a statement to say that across the board, there's been almost no innovation in the last 50 years, right? When you pick up your iPhone or your Android, whatever kind of phone you have, I don't care. You have a hundred apps that do a hundred different things. The way you book a plane, completely different. By the way, the way that the uh, airlines do pricing, completely different. When you want to go from place A to place B, you're not putting your arm up like a putz on the street corner, you're pulling up Uber. And there's how you bank is completely different. Like when was the last time you walked into a bank branch? You might still do it, but with a lot less frequency than you used to. And there's not to sound like a 2011 Verizon commercial, but there's an app for that for literally everything that's not real estate. And over the last now 10 years, you've seen a lot of the innovation really in the last three or four or five years. I think everything's in play, right? Across property types, across geos. Uh, you know, I'm friendly with and we're investors in a residential brokerage in Korea, a residential marketplace in Latin America, like as far behind as we are in the U.S., other markets are even further behind. Um, there really isn't something that is being done in real estate that technology shouldn't be able to do better. It doesn't mean everybody should be a trillion dollar business, right? Um, doesn't mean every business should be venture backed, which is a whole separate conversation. But if you wake up in the morning and you're a tenant, an occupier um, of any type of space, your life should look different three years from now than it does today. And if you're the owner of that property, your life should look different three years from it does today. Yeah, I, I, I love that. And it, it's so true. It's like the, the pace of technology evolution, it, well, uh, not it is obvious, is not just a linear thing these days. It's very much exponential growth. What we're seeing over the past year is kind of the same thing that we saw over the past many years before that. And what we saw the many years before that was the same growth that we saw in the 50 or 100 years before that. So it's really interesting to think that as the the, the pace of innovation is increasing, what we're going to see in just the next couple years. Can you talk to us a little bit about how Square Foot has evolved over the last Last nine years, I imagine, just with the pace of innovation increasing, uh, what you originally envisioned in 2011 has probably changed a little bit, and, and the original goal of the company might be the same. But um, I'm guessing your product and evolution has has been impacted. What's what's gone on over the last nine years? Yeah, that's it. I actually that I couldn't have phrased any different. So any better, rather. So the goal has always been the same, which is growing company struggle, finding transacting occupying real estate. And what we actually, when we started, we said, let's just do like Zillow for office space, right? Like the main problem that somebody feels is, um, I just want to see inventory, right? So again, getting back to that, when you go look for a house or apartment, you go to Zillow. And then Zillow historically made money uh, selling ad units, right? To brokers and whoever else wants to get in front of you when you are uh, trying to buy a house. And that's actually what we started with. Uh, we only did that for about six months because we saw pretty quickly was that even more so than on the residential side where everybody still uses a broker, on the commercial side, you need one kind of whatever, twice as much, right? Because it's a transaction that's infrequent, very big. It's like the second largest line item on your P&L as a company. Now, granted, that's a order of magnitude less than your people cost, but it's still like the second biggest expense. By the way, it's more of a fixed cost than your people because you can let people go. It's hard to get out of a lease. So yeah, it's big, it's infrequent. And yeah, so because it's infrequent, it's not something you do very often, obviously. So the markets move and you know the process of how to do it, it doesn't change, but it's not something you're familiar with. And it's not something that a lot of people in your friend group have done, right? So if you want to like buy a house, all of your friends have bought houses or rented houses or your mom, your cousin, your sister, somebody that you know has gone through that process. That's not the case with commercial real estate leases, right? If you call your 10 closest friends, have any of you guys done a commercial lease? I'm willing to bet that like fewer than two of them will say yes. So then where are you supposed to look for help, right? So that's why we launched a brokerage and that's again about six months. And then the last call it three or four years, which now looks prescient or dumb luck or some combination. Well, actually neither. It's all based on the data that we get through our system. Flexibility is the future, right? So going back 
I guess a little more than two years ago, we bought a company called Pivot Desk. Uh, Pivot Desk, you can think of like Airbnb for office space. So uh, we have an office of 8,000 square feet. Uh, we're not using all of it because some of that's our growth space. And this gets back to great. You have to sign a long-term lease because that's how the industry sets itself up. But anyway, what do we do with these extra 20 desks? You put them on Pivot Desk. So we did that middle of last year, early last year, we launched a program called Flex by Square Foot, which is another um, service that we offer our clients that helps unlock shorter lease terms, right? Because what we saw, again, from a data perspective, the last few years, even pre-COVID, more and more clients, more and more tenants wanted shorter term leases, right? Because in commercial real estate, the average lease is five or 10 years. But the way the companies are being built these days doesn't really lend itself to five or 10 year lease cycles. So when we you know, get the big drawing board of the office out and you say, well, what should we be building from a product perspective, uh, from a service perspective to help our clients solve their real estate needs? How do we do that? Right. So that's pivot desk helps that flex by square foot helps that. Got it. And so here. You, you said yourself, though, that a lot of us don't deal in these types of transactions. So your, um, your customer demographic is probably smaller than a residential real estate prop tech company. The cycle for leasing office space tends to be longer than residential. Residential, you'll lease month to month or more commonly annually. In commercial, it could be two years, five years, 10 years, 30 years for a triple net. But you have a marketplace. Your company is a marketplace. And like any marketplace, you rely on network effects. Basically, this whole idea of you need a lot of buyers and you need a lot of sellers to come together for your company to gain enough traction to actually start making a lot of money. And if you can't get enough buyers, you can't get enough sellers, the company is not going to kind of gain traction and take off. So how do you reconcile this whole, we need network effects in this business. We need lots of buyers. We need lots of people that are looking for leases. We need lots of sellers, people that have have commercial space to lease with the fact that there are fewer buyers and sellers in this space and the sales cycle, the, the lease cycle is longer. So how did you focus on building those network effects and getting customers on both sides? Yeah. So one of the things that we've gotten very good at here at Square Foot is um, aggregating tenant demand. What does that mean? It means that when you're looking for office space, especially in our main market of New York, and we're about to launch two or three markets the first quarter of 2021, if you're Googling New York City office space, any of the neighborhood office spaces, uh, like Chelsea office space or Flatiron office space, downtown office space, you're finding us, right? Because taking two steps back, what is the customer journey for somebody looking for space, commercial space, right? Historically, and still, if we look up the block in Midtown, it's a bunch of kids just out of college, cold calling companies saying, hey, do you need help with office space? I'd love to come tell you about the market. So very, I don't know if it's push for, or pull, but that way, right? Most things don't work that way anymore, right? Everybody, for whatever they want, picks up their phone or their laptop and Googles it, right? When your air condition breaks, maybe you're calling your friend to say, hey, your air condition broke the other day, who'd you use? Um, you're sure shit not waiting for the air conditioner repairman to call you saying, hey, it's been pretty hot today. Is your air conditioner working order? What you're doing is you're Googling air conditioner repair and then wherever I live. And that's where we start, right? So when you're looking, because you, when you think about like, how do you acquire users? You think about, well, if I was a user, how do I want to be acquired, right? And it's going to be in the comfort of my own office or the comfort of my uh, house late at night after work, and I'm going to Google fill in the blank office space. So we've built the business from the ground up, um, making sure that that, that works. Uh, luckily for us, um, that's not nearly as competitive on the commercial side as it is on the residential side. We're also very, very good at it, but it's also not as competitive. So that's on the demand side. And then the really nice thing um, about the commercial real estate brokerage industry or landlords they love doing deals and they can only do a deal if they have a tenant. So you say, knock, 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 Mr. Landlord, Mrs. Landlord, I have this tenant. Are you interested? Right? So demand creates supply in a very nice way for us there. And now if I'm being provocative, I'll say you're a moron. If you don't have your listings on my prop on my, on what your, your property listed on square foot, right? Because, do you think more people are going to know about your space if it's listed on a publicly faced uh, listing portal or whether uh, 
or if it's not? Like a pretty easy question. I mean, it's a self-serving question. Um, and most landlords know the right answer to that question, thankfully. Excellent. I have to ask, though, Jonathan, and I suspect a lot of listeners are wondering the same thing, right? You've talked about your business model. You've talked about a couple new markets you're expanding into. You're talking about growing demands on both sides. I'm curious to know, what other types of things have you set your company up to do that have enabled you to continue thriving through everything that's happened in 2020, especially looking into the future when you're able to expand? So what were the differentiators that you built into the infrastructure of your company that have enabled you to keep going and keep growing? Look, it's both tried, but 100% correct, but I have an, we have an amazing team here. Right. And that enables you to roll with the punches. And if 2020 has been anything, it's been a ton of punches. Commercial real estate has been uh, very impacted, to say the least. And, you know, we've made a lot of decisive decisions over the last nine months to make sure that we'll still be here nine months and nine years from now. Right. So very fortunate to have a president who's been through. I don't know, three or four recessions, not to age him too much, because then you can count how, well, if it's four recessions, how old must he be? And I remember sitting here in the office, right? This was like early March. Uh, we had already suggested most people start working from home. This was like literally like the last week before we said, okay, nobody can come back to the office for now. And I said, all right, Mike, what should we do, right? What have you seen work? Uh, how have you managed to get through three or four recessions very successfully? Uh, your previous brokerage company. And that necessitated some really tough decisions, especially early in this. But it set us up well to fight another day, which is really the name of the game. This will not be our best year ever. But with that being said, we've made a ton of progress, right? We've brought on a lot of this is, you know, always, but especially this year, is how do you set yourself up for the future? Not so much like when we're sitting in June, it wasn't like, how do we make sure we have an amazing November? We were sitting here in June. It was like, how do we make sure that November 2023 is amazing, right? Because there's very little stuff that we can be doing today that impacts tomorrow. But there's a ton of stuff we can be doing today that impacts next year and the year after that. I love that. And and I think it's a great lesson for all entrepreneurs and business owners out there that, yeah, there could be struggles today, but your struggles today are opportunities in the future. And as long as you're thinking long enough term, um, whether that's six months out or a year out or three years out, basically uh, there, there's going to be opportunities and whatever roadblocks you're running into today are going to be different roadblocks in a couple of years. Uh, now's a great time to start preparing for those. By the way, one thing that I've learned, if I've learned one thing, is that there's always something broken, right? That, by the way, I, if I, there's one thing I wish somebody told me about when we started this 10 years ago. It's not like be prepared to wake up and still be doing this 10 years from now, but that uh, stuff broken or on fire is the norm. Yeah, I, I love that. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. Okay, I want to pivot a little bit because, I mean, we could talk about square foot for, for a long time. You probably would love to, but I, I have something else that I'm really interested in, so I'm going to force you to pivot here a little bit. So back in 2011, you saw an opportunity in this emerging area called PropTech, Property Technology. You've now built a decade-old company uh, around this emerging market, uh, prop tech, but you haven't just done that. You've kind of taken a step further and you've started investing in other companies that are in this space. You saw an opportunity, not just to build a company around prop tech, but also to, to become an investor at other companies. And so I'd like to kind of dig into that. Cause I know a lot of our listeners have heard this whole idea of there's venture capital, there's angel investors. There are these people out there that invest in companies. 
and we've talked in multiple episodes with people um, who are building companies and getting these investments, but I've never had anybody or we've never had anybody on the show who is actually one of those investors, somebody that actually invests in these companies. So I'd love to get your perspective both for our listeners who are building companies that might want to get investment at some point. I'm sure you can can give some, some insight to them about how the other side works. Um, but also, we have a lot of people who are entrepreneurs, they're investors in the real estate space, and they may be saying, hey, at some point, I want to get into investing and being an angel investor, being a venture capitalist maybe one day. So I, I think this is a great topic. Are you willing to kind of go into that line of questioning? Yeah. Happy to. I find them to be very symbiotic with my day job, so it's great. Yeah, and that's kind of what I see here in, in this discussion. So I guess walk us through your evolution as uh, an investor in other people's companies. When did you make your first investment? What led you to do that, and how have you have you grown in that industry? Yeah, so <laughs> the crappy joke I'll make is that we've been doing prop tech since before prop tech was a word. And so kind of winding the clock back, like – not 2012, right when we started, but within a couple of years after that, once uh, to say we were established is like stupid, but like once we were like a thing and I started having friends and whatever, I would start getting people reach out to me either from my old life in commercial real estate or from business school or friends of friends or whatever saying, Hey, I'm trying to start, I don't know what they call it at the time, but we'll call it prop tech now. Uh, I'm starting this prop tech company. I'd love to kind of bend your ear on, on what, the industry is like, and I always like, I like to learn about new things. So it's as selfish as it is selfless. Um, so I'd always take those meetings and happy to, happy to hear about what you're building. Um, and over a few years, you know, some of these I thought were pretty cool and, you know, they reached out to me for advice and there's this old joke. If you, uh, want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. Uh, and a couple of these, I said, Hey, Billy or Sally, I really like what you're doing. Can I, you know, write a small check? I'd love to be a part of what you're building. So I did that a few times and I learned a lot and it helps me. It helps and it helps me be better at my day job because I get to see what kind of parallel parts of the industry are doing with technology. I get to see just like parallel companies being built because you know I have one, a sample set of one as it comes to when it comes to like seeing what a company is what it's like to build a company. So yeah, it's having fun and learning a lot. And then kind of just from an evolution perspective, uh, middle of 2018, somebody told me about AngelList. Uh, AngelList is a talent platform, which I already known about, but there's also the other part of AngelList, which is, I guess we'll call it like equity crowdfunding for venture deals. So I started participating in some syndicates, right? So syndicate being somebody has a deal, not their company, but like, George's company is raising capital and then I get an allocation for it and I go take it to my syndicate, right? So I start participating in a couple of syndicates, writing really small checks, again, learning, having fun. And I took a step back and said, wait a minute, these deals that I'm participating in don't look very different from the deals that are like kind of coming to me, the ones that I'm helping out with. Why don't I try and be a syndicator? So I started doing that the end of 18 and you know, now I've done probably like almost 30 deals in the last kind of, I guess now two and a half years, uh, most of which have been prop tech, probably three quarters have been prop tech. And then the other stuff, just like things I think are interesting and like potentially be really big businesses. That's like in a direct to consumer meat company called Porter Road. I was a customer first and I heard they were raising money and now I'm an investor too. And COVID has been very kind to Porter Road. Um, and then, yeah, actually over the summer, the syndicate uh, didn't morph, didn't really evolve, but I also launched a prop tech specific fund where with a group of committed capital LPs. So like investors who say, great, I really like what you're doing here. I now have committed capital to do these same investments, same types of companies, except only in prop tech. And the really special thing is that maybe 90% of my LPs there are real estate and prop tech executives, right? So it's uh, super, it makes my life a lot easier, right? In that I have this brain trust of people across the industry. Again, the industry being residential, commercial, multifamily, just everything who know their parts of the world, a whole hell of a lot better than I know their parts of the world. So that helps with sourcing because 
there's always somebody saying, hey, Jay, Carol, I have this idea. So then that winds up on my desk. Or there's something that winds up on my desk and I say, hey, this is in this part of the world that you spend all your time in. What do you think of it? And then the best thing about it, actually, is after we decide to partner the company, the brain trust can be value-add investors, right, in in real way. Like, we've already made a lot of customer introductions, uh, supply partnerships, and all this other stuff. So I'm sure you'll want to dig in on some of that, but that's kind of been the, the, the narrative arc. I love it. So Jay is much more well-versed in these type of topics. But as we talked about earlier, this is all very new to me, Jonathan. And I suspect it is to a lot of our uh, a lot of our listeners as well. So I'd really like to know just from a starting perspective, you know, since you've done over 30 deals, you've launched some of your own funds. Does that mean I, as somebody starting out in this arena, would have to have millions or tens of millions of dollars available to invest by myself? Or can I somehow become an, some type of uh, angel investor without having millions? And how does that all work together? Like, yeah. just give me some more perspective on that. Yeah, I don't have anywhere near any of those numbers you just said. So look, the easiest way and kind of the cheapest way, you can back angelist syndicates. I'd love to have any of your listeners be a backer of mine. We've got more than a thousand backers. All that being a backer means is that you get access to my deals. Uh, And there's a lot of other syndicates that are great too. I'm a member of a lot of other syndicates where I participate, where I'm not the lead. And you can get started for as little as a thousand dollars a company. I mean, that's how I really, I mean, I did a few of these like deals where I knew the people, the CEOs myself, but I got really active writing those thousand dollar checks into random companies. Random, not in the sense of like, oh, here's a company, here's a thousand dollars, but random. And then I didn't know the CEO one-on-one. Yeah. Um, I think it's just to use an analogy that maybe a lot of our listeners will get in the real estate world. We can go out as, as, as real estate investors and we can buy deals and we can spend our own money. Um, we can borrow money and use that money. But for a lot of us, when we want to do big deals, like I, Carol and I recently participated in, in a multifamily syndication, it was a $20 million deal. And yeah, we could borrow a lot of that money, but at the end of the day, down payment was seven, $8 million. We didn't have seven or $8 million to put in the deal ourselves. So we went out and we started, again, the word you used, a syndication. And this was basically, we started up a company where Carol and I and a couple of our partners run the company. We're the general partners. And then we bring in passive investors that kind of pool all their funds and they're called limited partners. And basically each one can put in a little bit of money. But at the end of the day, that company has now raised seven or $8 million. And all of those limited partners together with the general partners can take that money and put it into the deal. So it sounds like what you're saying is you kind of do the same thing. You're the general partner. You bring together all of these investors that can put in a thousand or 2,000 or $20,000, whatever the number is. And at the end of the day, you have this big pot of money that you then take and you allocate to invest in startup companies. Do I have that right? Uh, 99% right. Oh, okay. Well, correct me on the other 1%. So the 1% and I trip a lot of people up, myself included with it. So there's two things, which is the syndicate and then there's the fund. The syndicate is opt-in. The fund is like the syndicate is opt-in to any individual deal, right? It's actually the same thing in in real estate finance, right? So it sounds like y'all just pulled together a syndicate for a multifamily thing. Right. Uh, that was a one-off transaction and you wrote up a deal memo and you emailed it to all your buddies and said, hey, who wants to pass the chips? That's one way to buy. And I do that too uh, on the, that's the syndicate side. Uh, and then the other way, um, which happens very commonly um, in, in real estate is uh, you raise a fund, right? Which then you get the commitments up front and says, okay, everybody, this is my thesis. This is what I'm going to do. Put up your chips and then I'm going to go make us all some money. And that's what I do for the, the fund, fund structure. Got it. So like on the syndicate side, you say you've talked to the CEO of Cool New Product LLC. He's got this, this, this technology company and you say, okay, I'm going to raise money for you. So you start um, a company that raises money um, th- that is specifically to fund 
cool new product LLC and the CEO that you know, and everybody that's investing in that syndicate knows exactly what company their money is going into, as opposed to a fund where you're saying, okay, trust me to kind of go do my due diligence, pick the right companies. I'm going to invest in a whole bunch of companies. You put money into my fund, and then you trust me because I have the experience and the knowledge and the connections and the network to kind of go out and deploy those funds in various things. I might invest in five companies or 50 companies or 100 companies. And at the end of the day, your money is going to kind of get doled out across all those investments in the fund. Do I have that better? Is that better? That's exactly right. And there's benefits to both the GP and the LP in both of those, both benefits like pluses and minuses rather. Got it. So let's say somebody listening to this thinks, oh, that's really cool. I could go out and do a real estate syndicate, um, buy a 500-unit apartment complex and raise $40 million. That seems like fun, but I really like this idea of investing in companies, and I want to know how to get started doing this. How could somebody, how did you get started? How could somebody that's listening right now kind of get the what what are the first steps that they would need to take to go out and start one of these either syndications or funds? Maybe you can talk about the differences. And actually, assuming they can raise the money, how do they get the relationships with the people they're investing in? And how do they make the decisions on what to invest in? What's that whole ecosystem look like? Yeah. I mean, so it's all pre- just like in real estate, everything's predicated on deal flow. And if some if one of the listeners already has great deal flow and they're just like, you know, I have more deals I know what to do with, and I can't write all these checks myself. That makes sense for you to try and start a syndicate or a fund. Um, more likely, I'm guessing, they don't, which is fun. Like, you just have to be in the ecosystem to have it. So, by the way, the way I got started was I participate in other people's syndicates. That's what I would do if I was most people. Um, happy to have any of your listeners in my syndicate, uh, and I can also point people to other syndicates that I like as well. Yeah, that makes sense. So I guess, again, just using that real estate analogy of investing in like big multifamily apartment syndicates, um, a lot of us started by investing in other people's apartment complexes and we were limited partners. We didn't have any say in it. We would put the money in and we would get our return back. Um, And then we kind of graduate to, oh, okay, now I understand what's actually going on here. I want to run one of these deals. So I become the general partner and I start raising money from other people. And I'm now the operator um, who makes all the decisions, but I'm pulling money in from other places. And yeah, I guess it's a a pretty good analogy there. Yeah. And that's exactly right. Because by the way, and I, I do some, I've never done any GP real estate work, but I've done some LP stuff in real estate. I hope these aren't famous last words for anybody uh, listening, but it's like really hard to lose all your money in real estate transaction. doesn't mean they all perform amazingly, but it's like really hard like to buy a multifamily apartment complex for a hundred dollars and have it go to zero dollars. Like it might go to 80, but it's not going to go to zero. Most venture investments go to zero, right? So a couple things to take into account there is don't put all of your eggs in one basket. You should have a very diversified portfolio. And two, you want to be in like the good deals, right? So two things about that one, you should align yourselves with people who have access to the good deals. And then two, um, this gets back to the diversification thing. You want to be in as many deals as makes sense. Uh, Because even the people who do this professionally for the last 30 years never know which company is going to be the company, right? So they have portfolios. There's no VC out there who's like, yeah, this is my one company. VCs have portfolios of dozens of companies. And even then, and by the way, when they first write write those checks in those companies, they all have the potential to be trillion-dollar businesses. Otherwise, they don't write the checks. And these are people who do this professionally and are a lot smarter than I am. And they're still wrong 70% of the time, which is not a bad thing, right? It just means you need to have the portfolio because you never know why companies don't work, right? Sometimes the market, I mean, it's easy after the fact to be like, oh, this was too early or the guy was too stupid or whatever. But like, I mean, there's a hundred things that can kill a company. Yeah. A lot more than that. Yeah. And that's one of the things I love about real estate is I know when I get in a deal, typically I can bound my returns pretty well. I know that I'm going to go, if things go really poorly, I might break even or make a little bit of money. Obviously you can always risk losing some money. If things go really well, I know I might make 10 or 
15% to IRR. Um, and so obviously diversification is always important, but when I go and do an investment in an early stage startup company, for example, basically every time I read a PPM, a prospectus, or I get involved in a syndicate, I will read the words, you are going to lose all your money. Basically, they want you to know that that is a risk. And in a lot of cases, that's what's going to happen. But by the same token, in a real estate deal, I'm never going to make a hundred times my money. I'm never going to make 500 or a thousand or even 5,000 times my money. But in the early stage uh, company investing world, making 50 or a hundred or a thousand times your money, it happens. And it doesn't happen often, but it's also not a never happen sort of thing. You can make a thousand or even 5,000 times your money if you happen to pick the right company, Uber, Airbnb. Um, so can you talk to us a little bit about um, like that whole risk versus returns in the angel investing world? Um, how diversified does somebody need to be? Should I invest in three companies or 300 companies? And should I be expecting to make 5% returns or 50% returns or somewhere in between? Can you talk to us a little bit about that risk and reward? Yeah. So actually, Angelus does a lot of good research on this. I think you probably want to be in at least 20 to 30 to have enough diversification there. And like the way I talk about it is like, you know, if you're going to have, we'll just use round, let's say you have, but this is like a lot of money, right? So you have $100,000 that you want to do this. If it was me with $100,000, I would write probably $101,000 checks, maybe 52,000, 50, $2,000 checks. I don't think I'd write 10 tens. Um, this is me personally. Everybody has slightly different strategies. By the way, with diversification, as by the way, with like public equity stuff and probably with real estate private equity too the absolute best performing funds are gonna be concentrated in the winners, okay? By the way, the absolute worst performing funds are gonna be concentrated in the losers. And by the way, whoever was writing those checks at the time didn't say, oh, I think these are gonna be the losers, I'm gonna go bet on them. In my estimation, and I think the math backs all this up, the best chance of having a very good performing portfolio is to be in a lot of deals, right? So. That's one thing. The second thing is expected returns. I mean, all I know is you can look at like historic performance, like the average VC investment goes to zero. Okay. Uh, the top performing fund, the top, top performing funds are like literally stupid. I just read something yesterday, Sequoia, who is um, like one of the top one, two or three firms like period. They're an investor in Airbnb and I think also in DoorDash, both of which are about to go public. They're definitely an investor in Airbnb, I think. How's that for a stupid statement? But whatever they're invested in, in that fund is going to be a 10x fund, right? Which means if you put in $100, it turns into $1,000. Yep. That is it's stupid. Right. Yeah, I heard 2020, they've already returned 11 times in their fund, which, and this is a tough year. This is a year where a lot of companies have gone out of business and, and yeah, they've returned 11 times this yeah, year. So that's your 10x. If it's 11 yeah. times, yeah, yeah, that's 10x, right? Yeah. So very, very lucky if you're an LP there. I mean, granted, all their LPs are, they've been amazing for the last like 30 years. So all their LPs are nonprofits, I think, actually. And that's one of the things they pride themselves on. But yeah, like, 10x return that to be abundantly clear that's not 10 percent return over the life of the fund right so that's like i do, let's say it's a 10-year fund that's crazy yep yep okay so we shouldn't expect to do to be real quick right so i'll do stupid math if you put a hundred dollars into a real estate investment that earns seven percent a year that doubles in 10 years Right. So one goes to two yep. here, one went to 10 over that exact same time. So yep. literally five times as good. Got it. I assume nobody should expect 10 X returns uh, in this. Yeah. Um, but by the same token, because it's more risky than real estate, you're probably expecting more than five or 6%, which is yeah. what we see in a typical deal, typical cap rate in real estate these days. I, I think if you have a well-diversified portfolio and there's an asterisk there, what does well-diversified mean? Um, I think 10 to 20% is like a fair, gut check, right? But over, over time, Got like 10%, 10 to 20% annualized over, over a bunch of years. 
Got it. Got it. And how long, what, what is the typical deal? So like in the, again, let's use the real estate analogy, typical multifamily deal is going to be four to six years before um, you buy, renovate, stabilize, and then resell the asset. Um, what does an investment in a company look like? Is it a two-year investment, a 20-year investment, somewhere in between? I think you should assume five to 10 and the longer, the better, right? Because the thing with real estate uh, versus venture, real estate, the returns don't compound in a way that they do in, in venture, right? So in, in real estate, right, you buy your multifamily, let's say it's a value add multifamily, you put in your new stainless steel appliances and now it's worth a whole bunch more money, like on a percentage basis, it's worth 20% more. So you refinance out and pay back everybody and you're getting your coupons going forward. Um, and by the way, you're getting those coupons because there's nothing that the multifamily operator can do with that excess cash flow that makes the asset more valuable. However, in venture, you don't get dividends because you hope, and this is the case, that the company has much better uses of that extra $100 every year to reinvest in the business. So that $100 is now worth $200 the next year and $300 the next year and $400 the next year. Right. So Airbnb, for an example, and Airbnb is like one of you know 20 or 30 once in a generation companies. It's a 30 plus billion dollar business, probably even more now. Um, it took them 13 years to do that. And at any juncture between here and then, then and now, uh, if I was an investor in Airbnb, I would much rather have Airbnb have $100 than me have $100. Because Airbnb was able to show the, because all this is like the power of compounding, right? And it's like what Warren Buffett talks about till he's blue in the face. Everybody, sorry, a lot of people talk about the power of compounding and venture is that. Right. I might be able to take that $100 in dividend and turn it into 200 in five years. If I leave it in, in, the, uh, in the startup, they could turn that $100 into 10000 in the next five years. That's exactly right. Got it. Cool. So I have a follow-up question on that, Jonathan. So how many deals do you invest in per year and how do you find them? And what are the, the types of things you are looking for that, that gives your fund confidence in a company? Yeah. Few questions. So there's three things that matter. So let's start there. So the three things that matter with a venture investment is team, product, and market, right? So uh, in inverse order, is the market big enough to support a venture size business, right? Uh, the second is the whatever the product is, so the solution that's being brought to that market, does that product solve the needs of, of the market? And then probably most important, but they're all the most important, is um, is this the team that can do that, right? So different people ask it different ways, like why is this the team that's gonna win? What uh, secret does this team know that nobody else knows? And that's gonna be something, some kind of secret about the market. And it's like not a real secret, but like a secret, like what's their, why do they know this space better than anybody else? Why are they able to build a product better than anybody else? And when a company checks all three of those boxes, you have the potential for a nice business. And then this gets back to every, not every, but like 90% of these go out of business. So that's why you have to have a bunch of them. Um, so those three things for me personally, the things that I have to like be vaguely interested, I mean, more than vaguely, I have to be interested. Lucky for me, I think, or lucky for the types of companies I work with, a lot of things interest me, especially when it comes to real estate. Like we're here with real estate, like, we're all in the ice ages or maybe the stone ages. I don't know which one came first, but we're definitely not in the industrial age. So, you know, as we were talking about earlier, across property types, across geos, across business models, there's a ton of really, really interesting innovation happening. And then for me personally, one of the things that's really important is I have to like really like the team, not just because the team has to be like very good at their job, but because if I'm going to get involved with a company, I need to be happy when one of them calls me at 11 o'clock on a school night saying, hey, I got this problem that I'd like your help with. And if you don't like the person calling you, you don't want to pick up the phone. That plus, you know, the investing thing for me is, is a hobby. You don't go, I don't golf because this is my hobby, but you wouldn't go golf with somebody you didn't want to spend five hours with, even if they're the best golfer in the world, because it's not worth it. And same here, right? So if the companies that we partner with uh, or in companies that we want to be spending time with, it's, a, it's an easy pass, actually. Awesome. Thank you for that. Okay. So 
I just want to know, Jonathan, what's next for, you've got so many great irons in the fire. What is next for all of them? What is on the horizon for Square Foot? What is on the horizon and coming up for your Angelist syndicates, for your prop tech fund? What is coming up in your world? What's going yeah. on? Look, my favorite part about what I, again, none of this, like, I didn't have like, I don't know they call it a dream board or something. Like I never had this like 10 year vision when I sat down 10 years ago, like 2010 going to business school saying, you know what? I want to wake up 10 years from now and have these three things. By the way, if you ask me then my wife, maybe you should listen to this and not like, I didn't think I'd be in New York 10 years. Um, when then, when I went to business school, um, so anyway, so it's not, I, I don't know that I have a 10 year vision forward from here. It's been a lot of you know, chance favors the prepared. And I've been, I think, very prepared and very lucky with everything. So the nice thing also, sorry, I know I went on a tangent there. For me, all three of those things, uh, which is really just two things, which is square foot and my angel investing are extremely symbiotic. Um, I have seen tremendous returns, not necessarily from a dollars and cents perspective, but also from a dollars and cents perspective with me doing both, right? Me investing makes me a much better operator. Me investing makes me better prepared when we go through our financing processes because I know what investors look at and what their hot buttons are and what you need to be speaking to. So thankfully for me, my hobby makes me better at my day job, right? Like going back to golf and no offense to golf. I used to golf. Maybe I'll start golfing again. But if I golf on the weekends, it doesn't make me better running square foot. Here, doing all my angel investing actually does. Uh, and vice versa, right? Running square foot makes me better angel investor. So a lot more rambling than you wanted, but going forward, uh, I've never been more bullish or excited about what we're building here at Square Foot. Uh, there is an enormous market dislocation, which anybody uh, who's alive for the last year knows about. Uh, commercial real estate has been very impacted. Um, market dislocations are really scary, but they're also the most exciting times, right? Because market dislocations uh, mean opportunity, right? Uh, and we could talk about 10 examples of historic market dislocations and the fortunes that were made coming out of them. Whether or not we get a fortune, we'll see, but there's a very fun time for us to be doing what we're doing. Um, we're having tremendous success with hiring brokers, both in New York and in new markets. These are brokers, uh, extremely experienced, call it, you know, kind of 10 to 30 years who've been doing things a certain way at the big shops. And they say, it's kind of stupid that everything in my life is done one way. But when I walk into my office, real estate is still done another way. And then we come knocking on their door and they say, oh, this is actually pretty interesting. Um, so we've had a lot of success there. Uh, we will be launching new markets, which we're really excited about. Uh, you know, I mentioned we have Pivot Desk and Flex by Square Foot, uh, which are options that help services and product lines that we have here at Square Foot only that bring flexibility to the market. We saw this coming. We didn't think that there was going to be this catalyst with a global pandemic, but we, it's not just us. Everybody in the industry has been talking about 10 years from now, a third of the world will be flexible. That's what people were saying the beginning of 2020. That third, I think, has probably grown, and that 10 years has gotten shorted. And we're ideally uh, primed uh, to execute on that in the coming months. So that's my day job. Super excited. Uh, the nights and weekends hobby, Look, this is the first quarter I've been doing the fund, so the syndicate will slow down a little bit because uh, most of this stuff I've always looked at is prop tech. And if it's prop tech, it goes to the fund first. It's working out even better than I thought it was. So getting back to the whole, like, my life appears to be a lot of, you know, chance favoring the prepared. As my grandma says, it's better to be uh, lucky than good. Have, we have more than 45 LPs in the fund this quarter. Um, and it's like a murderer's row of real estate and prop tech executives, um, which has been like a, like I said, a superpower for the fund. It makes my life a lot easier for uh, what should be even better returns for the LPs. And I think we're gonna have a lot of fun doing it. So for the fund, well, first off, we're always accepting new LPs. So if anybody's interested in getting involved in prop tech, um, I guess we can put that in the show notes, uh, syndicate as well. Um, yeah, we're looking for a bunch of people to still get involved from the from from the LP perspective. And then we're always looking for new great companies that are doing new great things in, like I said, anything that touches the built environment, um, which is broad, but a broad and expansive, but a ton of opportunity. And we're still in maybe the bottom of the first inning, 
So uh, as an industry, not as the fund, the funds in the top of the first. Awesome. Okay. Well, with that said, I think this is a good place to jump into the final segment of our show, which we call the four more. And that's where we ask you the same four questions that we ask all of our guests. That's the four part. And then the more part, let you tell our listeners where they can connect with you, where they can find out more about you, your company, your fund, anything else you want to talk about. Sound good? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to take the first question. Uh, Jonathan, what was your very first or your very worst job? And what lessons did you take from it that you still use today? I've been pretty fortunate from a job perspective, but I'll say my, my was my first job was delivering pizzas. This was like, I guess, right after I turned, I had a learner's permit. Sorry, I had a, I don't know what they called it, whatever. I was like 15 or 16 uh, and I delivered pizzas for a summer and then part of whatever year after that in high school was. First off, like you're working in, in retail, which I think everybody should do at some point in their life. Customers uh, like to complain. Everybody likes to complain. And I think that's an important lesson in life. And, you know, you meet a lot of, you interact with a lot of people. Um, I learned that you're not supposed to use the Parmesan that's on the table most places because they don't clean the insides of it. <laughs> um, Make sure that goes in the show notes. That is fantastic. The red pepper flakes are fine, but I wouldn't use the Parmesan most places. <laughs> Very uh, unique piece of wisdom there. I love it. Okay, Jonathan, I would love to hear what is the best piece of advice you have for young entrepreneurs or new business owners that you haven't shared yet today? Well, I haven't shared yet today. Have you told us everything you know? No, but my favorite one is that <laughs> fucking up is normal. That's great. Yeah. That is great. Seriously. You're normalizing. Fuck. Oh, I just said it. I said it. Yes. You're normalizing right. up in business. And that's exactly right. That's huge. And that it's important to know that most F-ups aren't catastrophic, but they happen all the time. And I think the challenge that a lot of people have, by the way, that I had until pretty recently, uh, actually, unfortunately, is uh, not recognizing that was part of it. Right. So uh, when I used to make a mistake, I was like, oh, shit, I suck at my job. Like nobody else is making mistakes. You just pick up the paper and everybody's like worth a trillion dollars and they're hiring a billion people and they're, you know, on these planes looking so happy. And here I am, like, I can't tie my shoe. But that's not the case. Everybody struggles. That's great. Love it. Okay. Question number three favorite book favorite business book or book that you would recommend that our listeners be reading? Maybe something that, uh, that hasn't been mentioned a million times by a million different people. I'm trying to think of what, I mean, the cliche answer is power broker, which is not about a real estate broker, but it's about this guy, uh, Robert Moses, who aggrandized a ton of power in New York and essentially built the city real estate nerds. The book I've read recently that I really like, uh, is a book called hire. H-I-G-H-E-R, uh, which was about the skyscraper races in the, uh, I guess, late 20s, early 30s here in New York with the Chrysler building, which was built by Walter Chrysler of Chrysler, um, and then downtown a building called uh, 40 Wall Street. And it was this like, there's two architects that were partners and then arch enemies, and they were building the two tallest buildings. And then by the way, uh, out of nowhere, you have the Empire State Building, but it's a really fun book to read. Um, it's a it's also like a historical piece because it talks about the go-go 20s and then 30s not as go-go. So yeah, that one's a good one, especially for real estate folks. Super. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. And I'd love to ask this question of all of us with an entrepreneurial mindset. See where it leads us. What is something along the way, Jonathan, that you have splurged on either in your work life or your home life, just however, wherever, whenever, whether it be a thing or an experience that was totally and entirely 100% worth it. To my wife's consternations, I'm um, pretty miserly. Uh, I don't know, I'm seven months into having a kid and that seems to be pretty expensive and the best thing I've ever <laughs> done. <laughs> well, congratulations on the baby. And uh, yes, uh, they get more expensive as they grow up. 
That's right here. <laughs> we have to put him to work. He's going to have to start doing diligence for me. That's right. Absolutely. That's right. He's got to earn it. <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you for that, Jonathan. That was the four part of the four more. Now for the more part of the four more, can you tell our listeners where they can connect with you, where they can find out more about Square Foot, your company, uh, maybe where they can find out more about your syndicates or your, your prop tech fund, anything you want our listeners to know? Yep. So Square Foot is easy. It's www.squarefoot.com. Uh, as I mentioned, Pivot Desk a couple times. That's www.pivotdesk.com. I'm trying to be more active on Twitter. That's at JMWASS, J-M-W-A-S-S. Uh, actually, you can make it even easier. We can also include the show notes. But in my Twitter bio is a link to both my syndicate and my fund. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, not so much in posting, but like I check my LinkedIn multiple times a day. Uh, so feel free to connect with me there as well. Um, and then, yeah, in the show notes, we can, I'll give you the direct links for the uh, syndicate and, and the fund. We'd love to have uh, uh, any of y'all uh, along for the ride. Awesome. Jonathan, this has been absolutely fantastic. We appreciate you being here with us. And uh, this has been a great topic. This is something that we haven't discussed with on our show before. So I know our, our listeners are really going to get a whole lot out of this. And I look forward to having you back in a couple of years to talk about both how your fund is doing and how Square Foot is doing and growing. And uh, thanks again for being here. Yeah, thank you all for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, Jonathan. Great talking with you. Thanks. Oh my goodness. Loved it. Absolutely loved all of his discussions about Square Foot as well as Angelus. So Jay, I think there was one thing Jonathan said. I mean, there are so many things, of course, but one thing that resonated with me so well in terms of real estate and prop tech, right? He said that because of technology, everything in our life has changed so substantially. But real estate really is kind of just done the same. So we are at this time right now where we are on the cusp of prop tech just exploding. And there is so much opportunity at this time. I think that's really cool. I also think it, it is exceptionally cool that you, of course, have been talking about angel investing. You've been involved in angel investing for a long time. I, on the other hand, it's not my thing. That is not my wheelhouse, not my area of expertise, but Jonathan broke it down in a way that now I can understand what you do. So I thought it was phenomenal all the way around. Yeah, I, I thought it was great too. And Jonathan is somebody I've known for a little while, which is the reason I chose to to bring him on the show because what he's doing both with Square Foot and his investing has been amazing and he's a great guy. Yeah, just a fantastic episode and a little bit different than some other stuff we've talked about in the past, but in a good way. So anyway, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, I hope you have an amazing week. And yeah, we're winding down this year. So uh, go get your Christmas or Hanukkah or other holiday shopping out of the way and tune in again next week. And we'll see you next week on the Bigger Pockets Business Podcast. Let's wrap this up, baby. All righty. She's Carol. I'm Jay. Now go diversify where you invest your money today. Have a super week, everybody. Can't Thanks, wait everybody. to see you soon. Bye. Bye-bye.